CHAPTER VI PART II THE CURIOUS LORE OF PRECIOUS STONES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kunz Chapter 6 Part 2 In medieval times it was believed that the vision in the crystal was produced through the agency of an indwelling spirit, and therefore it was necessary to use some very potent spell to force this spirit to enter the stone. Many of these ancient spells have been preserved, and they contain a strange and incongruous mixture of religious and magical formulas. In one of these, dating from the end of the 15th century, after a recitation of a long and rambling conjuration, we read, And e'en ask ye child, if ye seeth anything, and if no, let the minister begin his conjuration again. As usual, the scrying was done by a child, the conjuration being spoken by the minister. An important part of the conjuration consisted in the repetition of a number of divine names, most of them originally Hebrew, but so much corrupted by reciters who did not know their meaning, that it is now exceedingly difficult to interpret them correctly. A proof that this form of magic was often regarded as quite compatible with religion is offered us in a passage from a 16th century manuscript where we read that the crystal should be laid on the altar on the side that the gospel is read on and let the priest say a mass on the same side. If the conjuration is successful, the same manuscript tells us that these angels being once appeared will not depart with glass or stone until the sun be set except you license them. It also seems that scrying was looked upon as a special gift, only granted to a favored few as a peculiar privilege, and we read that prayer and a good belief prevailed much, for faith is the key to this and all other works, and without it nothing can be effected. The child scryer, either maid or boy, should not be more than twelve years old. That a certain religious spirit, however mistaken, often animated the crystal gazers of the 16th century, is shown in the case of the speculator of John A. Windor, who confessed that when he led an impure life, the demons would not appear to him in his glass. He would then proceed to fumigate the apartment, as though believing that the very air was contaminated by the sins of the operator. We may hope that the seer was not content with this, but also tried to reform his evil ways. Another scryer, a woman named Sarah Skelhorn, declared that the spirits that appeared to her in the glass would often follow her about the house from room to room, so that she at last became weary of their presence. Both of these scryers had regular employment, 
for it was quite customary for a gentleman to have a household seer, just as he would have a body physician if he could afford it. A 16th century work on magic, the Hollenswang of Dr. Faustus, whose name has been immortalized for all ages by Goethe, gives very particular and detailed directions for the preparation and consecration of a crystal, whether glass or quartz. Faust asks his Mephistopheles whether such crystals can be made, and the spirit replies, Yes, indeed, my Faust, and directs Faust to go on a Tuesday to a glassmaker and get the latter to form a glass. It was requisite that this work should be done in the hour of Mars, that is, in the first, eighth, fifteenth, or twenty-second hour of Tuesday. The crystal, when completed, must not be accepted as a gift, but a price must be paid for it. When the object had been secured, Mephistopheles directs that it be buried in a grave, where it must be left for the space of three weeks. It was then to be unearthed. If a woman purchased it, she must bury it in a woman's grave. However, these preliminaries only served to prepare the crystal for the final consecration, as the mere material mass was regarded as inert and possessing no virtue until certain spirits were summoned to dwell within it. Mephistopheles confesses that he alone would not be powerful enough, and he directs Faust to call upon the spirits Azeruel and Adadiel also. Faust is assured that the three spirits will show him in the crystal whatever he may wish to know. If anything has been stolen, the thief will appear. If anyone is suffering from disease, the character of his malady will be revealed, etc. Another way of preparing a crystal glass or mirror is given in the same work. After the glass has been bought, it is to be immersed in baptismal water in which a first-born male child has been baptized, and therein it is to remain for three weeks. The water is then to be poured out over a grave, and the sixth chapter of the Revelation of St. John is to be read. Hereupon, the following conjuration should be pronounced. O crystal, thou art a pure and tender virgin, thou standest at one of the gates of heaven, that nothing may be hidden from thee. Thou standest under a cloud of heaven, that nothing may be hidden from thee. Whether in fields or meadows, whether master or servant, whether wife or maid, let this be said to thee in the name of God as a plea for thy help. The visions seen in crystal gazing were often supposed to be the work of evil spirits, seeking to seduce the souls of men by offering the promise of riches or by according them an unlawful glimpse into the future. Here, as in other magical operations, there was both white and black magic, recourse being had in some cases to good and in others to evil spirits. As an illustration of the latter practice, a 16th century writer relates that in the city of Nuremberg, sometime during the year 1530, a demon showed to a priest in a crystal the vision of a buried treasure. 
Believing in the truth of this vision, the priest went to the spot indicated, where he found an excavation in the form of a cavern, in the depths of which he could see a chest and a black dog lying alongside it. Eagerly the priest entered the cavern, hoping to possess himself of the treasure, but the top of the excavation caved in and he was crushed to death. The famous charlatan Dr. D., who was for a time a prominent figure at the court of Emperor Rudolf II, was highly favored by Queen Elizabeth. The queen visited him several times and even appears to have consulted him on political matters. In his diary, the doctor relates that the queen called at his house shortly after his wife's death, which took place March 16, 1575. Of this visit, he gives the following details. The Queen's Majesty, with her most honorable privy council, and other the lords and nobility, came purposely to have visited my library. But finding that my wife was, within four hours before, buried out of the house, her majesty refused to come in, but willed to fetch my glass so famous, and to show unto her some of the properties of it, which I did, her majesty being taken down from her horse by the Earl of Leicester, master of the horse, at the church wall of Mortlake, did see some of the properties of that glass, to her majesty's great contentment and delight. It was at Mortlake on December 22, 1581, that Dr. D. made his first essay with his crystal ball. The proceedings were conducted with a certain religious ceremonial and began with a pious invocation to the angel of the stone. This celestial being soon graciously deigned to manifest himself in the stone and, presumably by the voice of the scryer, answered the questions put by those present. There can be little doubt that Dee used more than one crystal in the course of his experiments. That now in the British Museum is of Cairngorm or smoky quartz. This variety of quartz may have been chosen because of the Scotch superstitions regarding its virtues. For, as a rule, charlatans seek to avail themselves of already existing superstitions in order to make their innovations more acceptable. To give assurance to those who consulted such crystals that no diabolical agency was involved in the production of the phenomena, it was customary that a child should be the crystal gazer. In Dr. D's experiments, however, it was usually the notorious Kelly, his Am Damne, who undertook this task of interpreting the crystal visions. The description given by D of a little girl who frequently acted as the intermediary of the higher powers suggests one of the fanciful creations of our great novelist Hawthorne. Her mystic name was Madimi, and she is depicted as a pretty girl about eight years old and with long flowing hair. To make her appearance more conspicuous, she was attired in a silk dress with Chateaillon effects in red and green. At times, during the seances, this gay little figure could be seen flitting about the study, rendered even more whimsical and strange from its contrast with the piles of dusty old books, the curiosities, and the magical instruments collected there.
This visionary maiden, Madimi, of whom D. relates so much in his diary, was apparently a child of fancy, a creation of Kelly's fertile brain. The diary is somewhat obscure in this particular and easily misunderstood, but there can be little doubt that where Madimi is represented as speaking, it is Kelly's voice that transmits to D. her revelations. One passage, often overlooked, gives evidence of this. Madimi has appeared and is addressing her remarks to Kelly and to D. by turns. Finally, D. says, I know you see me often, and I see you only by faith and imagination. To this, Madimi quickly retorts, pointing to E. K. Kelly, that sight is perfecter than his. Evidently, we must understand this to signify something that Kelly has told D., for the latter's words show that he did not himself see the little fairy pointing to his friend. In many respects, little Madimi may recall another spiritual maiden of whom we heard much a few years ago, the sprightly little Indian spirit Bright Eyes, whose love for candy and jewelry was so very earthly. Not only the quality of the crystal had to be considered, but also its support and surroundings. Of this, we have an interesting instance in the case of Dr. D's crystal. In one of his manuscripts is recorded the fact that on the 10th of March, 1582, Kelly saw in the crystal a representation of the form and arrangement of the table on which it should be set. Particular instructions on the matter were also directly imparted to the scryer by the angel Uriel. The table was to be square, measuring two cubits each way, and two cubits in height, and it was to have four feet. The material was to be sweet wood, and upon it was to be placed the sigillum dei, seal of God, impressed upon the purest, colorless wax, the disc being one and one-eighth inches thick and nine inches in diameter. It bore a cross and the magic letters A-G-L-A, -A, a transliteration into Roman characters of the initials of the Hebrew words signifying, Thou art great forever, O Lord. Four other and smaller seals were to be provided, one to be placed under each leg of the table, each of these seals being impressed with geometrical figures within or upon which were the seven sacred names of God and the names of the seven angels ruling the seven planetary heavens, Zabothiel, Zedekiel, Madiniel, Semeliel, Sameshiel, Nogabiel, Korabiel, Kokabiel, and Levaniel, the angels, respectively, of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon. Then there appeared to the scryer the figure of the table with the crystal resting upon it. Of this it is said, under the table did seem to be laid red silk to lie four square somewhat broader than the table, hanging down with four knops or tassels at the four corners thereof. Upon the uppermost red silk did seem to be set the stone with the frame, right over and upon the principal seal, saving that the said silk was between the one and the other. 
It therefore seems that the prejudice in favor of a black or at least a dark background for the crystal did not appeal to Dr. D., and indeed the effect of color may perhaps better serve to neutralize troublesome reflections than does black. The personages Kelly pretended to see in or around the magic crystal were described by him to Dr. D. in the greatest detail, and this undoubtedly served to lend more reality and authority to their communications. As an illustration of Kelly's inventiveness in this matter, we may take his description of Nalvage, a spirit that first appeared while the doctor and his famulus were in Krakow, April 10, 1584, and was subsequently a frequent visitor. The seer introduces his new control as follows. He hath a gown of white silk with a cape with three pendants with tassels on the end of them, all green. It is fur, white, and seemeth to shine with a wavering glittering. On his head is nothing, he hath no beard. His physiognomy is like the pictures of King Edward the Sixth. His hair hangeth down a quarter of the length of the cap, somewhat curling yellow. He hath a rod or wand in his hand, almost as big as my little finger. It is of gold and divided into three equal parts, with a brighter gold than the rest. He standeth upon his round table of crystal, or rather, mother of pearl. When reading the words spoken by Kelly and so carefully preserved by Dr. D., we are reminded, aside from the archaic turn of speech, of the minute descriptions so glibly given by modern mediums. It is true that lately in America the spirits of the former owners of the land, of the blameless aborigines, seem to have acquired a quasi-monopoly of the intercourse with the other world. Most of the early records of crystal gazing show conclusively enough that the images revealed in the stone were produced by the expectations, the hopes, or the fears of the gazer. In many cases, indeed, the vision is only prophetic because it determines the future conduct of the person who consults the stone. Fully persuaded that what has been seen must come to pass, he or she proceeds more or less consciously to make it happen, to fulfill the prediction. As an instance of this, we may take from an old German book the tale of a lovelorn maiden who seeks the aid of an enchantress to learn whether she will marry her lover, upon whom her parents look with disfavor. The mystic crystal is brought out, wrapped in a yellow handkerchief, and is placed in a green bowl beneath which is spread a blue cloth, the reflections from these different colors being probably calculated to stimulate the optic nerve and favor the appearance of some picture upon the polished surface of the crystal. The young girl, in rapt attention, looks long and earnestly. At last she cries out that she sees her own form and that of her lover. Both look pale and sad, and they appear to be about to set forth upon a long and perilous journey. For the lover wears riding boots and carries a brace of pistols. The girl is so terrified at the sight that she faints away. The sequel of this vision is a runaway match. 
and we can easily understand that when the lover proposed this adventure the girl believed that it was written in the book of fate and willingly agreed to undertake it the great humorous poem hudibras wherein all the foibles of the seventeenth century are castigated does not fail to make mention of dee and kelly and their crystal of the sorcerer whose aid hudibras seeks we are told he'd read these prefaces before the devil and euclid o'er and o'er and all the intrigues twixt him and kelly lascus and the emperor would tell ye kelly did all his feats upon the devil's looking-glass a stone were playing with him at bo-peep he solved all problems ne'er so deep in his experiments in crystal gazing dr d evidently used more than one crystal and did not indeed confine the operations of his scryer or scryers to brilliant spheres in the collection of horace walpole at strawberry hill was a polished slab of black stone obsidian from mexico this came into the possession of dr smith pigott and later eighteen fifty three into that of lord lundisborough it is now in the collection of prince alexis saltikoff horace walpole wrote a label for the stone in which he says that it had long been owned by the mordaunts earls of peterborough and was described in the catalogue of their collection as the black stone into which dr d used to call his spirits later it was owned by john campbell duke of argyle who gave it to horace walpole undoubtedly any polished surface whether flat or convex might serve the purpose of the scryer almost equally well the possible advantage of a convex or a spherical form consists in the multiplying of the reflections and light points so that the sight is induced to wander from point to point and that forms and even motions are suggested by the superposition and combination of the various reflections often too a light point visible to one eye will not be so to the other this sometimes provoking the phenomenon of binocular vision which asserts itself for a moment or two when the diverse images coalesce again though imperfectly giving an impression of movement for one gifted with imagination and the natural quality of visualizing brain pictures these shifting light points and the more or less definite and repeated reflections of surrounding objects offer abundant material out of which to construct lifelike pictures apparently seen in the crystal that the brain pictures thus thrown out so to speak upon the crystal may or may not have a peculiar psychic value other than their value as mere phenomena depends upon the significance we are inclined to attribute to the processes of the subconscious intelligence of its existence indeed there can be no doubt and many of our best thinkers incline to the belief that through it the narrow limits of our personality are occasionally transcended End of chapter six part two